know, you brought up um, Are You Single? And I got to talk about that one because when I first heard that, again, I heard on the radio first. And I it struck me immediately that it, it reminded me of Slave. I mean, with that bubbling and the bass rumbling and the way it starts, the beginning is incredible. Uh, I could listen to that beginning like for five minutes. But uh, and then it you know gets into the groove and everything, but it was kind of puzzling to me because I was like, "There's something about this reminds me of Slave," but I'm not sure what. And then and then when I saw who was involved and everything, it's like, "Oh, okay." Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of people to this day, some some people still think Mark Adams played that bass line, but that was Stevie Washington playing that bass line. And he, like I said, he worked with Adams with his sound. But Stevie had a sound of his own, you know, and it's like when he did that, when we when he came up, we he and I were sitting together coming up with that, but with a guitar and a bass acoustically, with like I said, with a little cassette player that had open mic and we just recording it and getting something getting things down that felt good, that felt, yeah, that feels strong, you know. And that's kind of how we, we we built we kind of built it and it evolved. You know, but yeah, uh, amazing stuff. The process of recording that was amazing. Uh, I think that was the first time we, uh, I don't know who else did it at that time, as far as the bands that we knew, but we were doing, but we used, uh, we synced up two 24 track machines together to, to, to record all the stuff. And uh, we just kind of went into, doing this in a way that we envision and to get it down the way we wanted to get it. It was just a learning experience. The whole process was fascinating. You learn something every day with Stevie Washington recording stuff. I mean, Stevie, Stevie taught me and so many others that work with him that you can virtually make anything work. You just, you know, there's, there's, it taught me that there's no, there's no real wrong stuff. It's just you can make it work according if you if you're paying attention to what you know and then and then when you play and as a player or instrument it's most important is if you don't lose sight of what you're playing with and what you're accompanying what you're playing to what you're trying to complement you know the song the song is everything the song is everything you can learn all the theory in the world that you want you can be the fastest player. You can be the most brilliant guy. Oh, this guy's killer, this and that. But if you don't know how to calm it down and give the song that you're playing what it needs, you're just as bad as the guy that can't play because you're overplaying a bunch of stuff and, and not complimenting, you're taking away from the song. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what those recording sessions and, and listening helped me to hear space everything should have space space to relate as uh, steve Barrington, we always used to say and steve Barrington would always say that space to relate you know so I, on that track how did you you must have felt very gratified when it became a hit and you were now successful in your own act you were very upfront i mean the cover just showed you and starlina and it was a kind of a whole new image for you guys, um, how how satisfying was that? It was pretty. It was pretty amazing. Uh, 
Yeah, I didn't. It was funny because the single was very funky, and it, but we got a big radio following all over the world, and in the South, in this country, in the West, Midwest, West Coast, everywhere. We were on heavy rotation, except in our own backyard in New York City. <laughs> it just didn't fit New York's format. Frankie Crocker had radio at the time, and it just didn't fit his format. You know, it was just mm -hmm. too funky. It sounded like a, a record that you would hear in the, in the radio in the South somewhere or whatever. I guess that's the way they viewed it, you know, that. But this is when you start getting into the business part of it and radio and how they do and whatever comes gets heavy rotation or medium rotation whatever and they have a format and they have a sound and frankie crocker was as big as it gets in new york you know chief rocker frankie crocker legend so we went everywhere and toured everywhere with that record but we come home and people are saying y'all still working on that record <laughs> they didn't even know it was out you know wow. but uh we had done tours with uh some of the biggest acts, all of Mark Hayes, all these guys, Frankie Beverly and Mays. We did a, the most memorable ones. And one of my favorites is we did four shows at the Front Row Theater in Ohio uh, with the Isley Brothers. Uh, man, we did, we opened up for them each show for two nights and it was just amazing. And, we, and uh, we, we got back word from them. They sent a message back and they said they wanted Want us to know that they felt like Aura was one of the tightest acts that, that opened up for them that year. And, uh, it was, and they, they gave an after party at at the at the hotel, and uh, all of them were there. And we came into the room to meet them. And I, classic me, where I had all these brilliant things to say to Ronnie Isley, who inspired me all my life. I could hardly get a word out. I said, Ronnie, thank you so much, man. You, you, Mr. Biggs. Yeah, you're just so much a part of my life, man. That, that's all I could say. I didn't, I didn't know what else to say. And he, he knew I was a kid that was speechless. He, just, he just, oh man, yeah, man, it's cool, it's cool. You know, real, just gracious, you know. And then had a party, and they invited everybody, and and everybody was kind of scared. We were kind of sitting around and we're playing music and trying to get it going. And Ronnie comes in and says, breaks the ice. He's like, oh, if you're not gonna go party, you got to go home. And everybody's. I exhaled and got up and started dancing. It was just like that, you know. It was one of the memorable times. These guys, I had been following the Isley Brothers forever, and they just had that sound, the special sound with their up-tempo tracks and with their ballads, and Ronnie's oh. voice needs no explanation. And Ernie, guitar hero, the, the way they wrote and played, and Ernie played drums on a lot of those records. Yeah, yeah. yeah bass. You know, that's uh, I mean, we're, we're getting ready to go. We played our show and we're going, we're coming out of our dressing room and they're coming out of their dressing room to take the stage. And this is the go for your guns days. They had all the Western outfits on it and they come, all of the guys are there. They're still alive, uh, Rudy and all of them. And, and they're standing there and they're looking cool. And we were like, we come out and I, I don't know who I said it to Ray or somebody said, whoa, <laughs> I said, there they are. Was, it was like, I just like a kid in a candy store, man. I was like, you kidding me? I'm standing in front, right in front of Ronnie Isley right now, man. I was like, it don't get no better than that for me. I, you kidding me? I, there was no better place on earth to be than right there at that time. 
That is great. I don't know if you can see, it might be too dark here now, but I got right in the middle there is an Ernie, uh, Ronald Isley signed. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I was a thrill. I got to, I got to interview him at his office one day, and that was a thrill for me, too, because, I mean, they're also one of my favorites. Man, they, they, they were, they were based in Teaneck, New Jersey. And uh, that wasn't, that was about, I say about 35, 40 minutes from where I was in Linden. I had an uncle that lived in Teaneck. You know, so, I mean, they, those guys are legendary, man. A lot of people didn't realize that they started at Motown. And when they didn't like the deal they were getting, they stepped off and they started their own label, man, a long time ago. T-Neck Records started with them a long time ago and they kept hits coming year after year after year and they were the only act on that label. I don't know too many other acts that can say that they pulled that off other than Prince, you know, in, in that fashion, you know, and they did it a long time ago. As, as famous as they are, I'm going to get you off track, but as famous as they are, I still don't think they get their due, you know, because, I mean, you just can't overstate the Isaac Brothers, in my opinion. And Ernie, too, is so underrated as a guitar player. Uh, brilliant stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I kind of can relate to what you're saying, but I, they do get a lot of respect, though. I mean, look, the Beatles came out with Twist and Shout, and, you know, the Isley Brothers, <laughs> I mean, a, a classic story of uh, when Isley Brothers had Jimi Hendrix playing and, yeah. and they, were, they were like, they saw the Ed Sullivan show and Jimmy was sitting in the living room with him watching the Ed Sullivan show. And I think Kelly, or Kelly uh, Isley or Rudolph, one of them said, okay, something's changed here. When you saw the Beatles, you knew something was going on. This British act is changing things. And they got two guitar players. That's great. And then he said, but we got Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was amazing. That's great to hear that stuff. So what some people might not realize that uh, between Aura and later Deja, you put out seven records. I mean, that's pretty significant. And the second one, or it's actually the third one, you came with another big hit with Make Up Your Mind, uh, yeah. easily as strong as uh are you single maybe it was even a bigger hit right that was uh that was kind of the, the the continued momentum from uh are you single we came off the road with that and didn't make up your mind uh by this time are you single had been a smash hit all over the states and in a lot of places overseas and this time when make up your mind came out New York had no problem with jumping on it right away because they knew they were they were already left in the dust with Are You Single and okay. they had to go ahead and they jumped funk or no funk, make up your mind got played in in our area. And it, it was retribution. We, we vindication rather, you know, to be able to have that in our own backyard. You know, we were working really hard and it's like you know, there's no need for no reason for it not to be played, you know. And you still had some of the former slave guys helping out, right, on, the, on this? They, uh, they're, they're former slave guys doing what? They were involved. Oh, on uh, on the Aura record? Yeah, on uh, A Little Love. A uh, Little Love, we had, actually what we had, yeah, Tom Lockett was a part of 
explorer with us. And uh, Stevie, Starlina, myself, uh, Tom, and, Star and Tom Lockett, we were kind of the nucleus of it. And then we found the keyboard player that we wanted to find with, which uh, was a friend of Stevie's growing up in school, Phil Fields, who played with M. Tune, uh, along with Ray Jackson later on on Juicy Fruit and all of that. He came with us before M. Tune, he was with Aura, and he played keys on Are You Single? He played the Fender Rhodes solo on Are You Single? And he was one of the main keyboard players. And then some of uh, Stevie's friends that he had from the East Orange area, brilliant, brilliant. I can't, I can't stand up about uh, his talent. Uh, Jimmy Randolph was a keyboard player, was a sound technician. <laughs> Jimmy Randolph is like water. He could be whatever you needed him to be. And he was that good. I mean, he's out on the road now doing sound with war, doing, doing their sound. I mean, recorded things with him and he was part of part of the camp. Uh, yeah, Ray Jackson was a part of it. I told you from the band. Uh, keyboard player Kevin Grady, he came out on the road with us. Right, he and his his girlfriend Gail, Gail Freeman. She had a couple records, uh, records that were out. On, I think it was RCA, if I can remember correctly. She had some things that were out. And she was a, a marvelous vocalist and an incredible pianist. And we had two of them playing keys. We had Jimmy Randolph playing keys and helping us. And we just had a big band. We had Pat Ellington singing backgrounds. He was a niece of Duke Ellington. And she was sweetest person you can imagine. And just talented. Could hear harmony like that. And just wherever she needed was needed, that's where she sang and just filled it out so beautifully. When you guys were on the road, were you also doing some slave cuts too or only the aura stuff? When we did the aura stuff on the road, no, we just did stuff to the aura thing because Slave was still out on the road doing their thing. You know, we just, by that time, single and make up your mind, you know, kind of start, took, are you single? Took roots early and then make up your mind, paved the way for make up your mind. So by then we just, people were kind of familiar with the albums. I remember touring on the make up your mind stuff and we were playing single and make up your mind and stuff off the album. And stuff that we like, and then people were singing lyrics. You know, we were down Phoenix, Arizona. We saw people singing lyrics to, you know, to patients and songs like that on the record. And we thought, wow, they they they're pretty aware of this stuff. You know, they know what they. Yeah, we played all our own material. I noticed, Kurt, on this record, I'm looking at uh, credits, and uh, you your name is on the sec the uh, little love a lot more than it was on. Send your love. You've uh, got a lot more songwriting credits and uh, more uh, behind the scenes credits. And were you actually just doing a lot more at that point or just getting credit for it finally? Um, yeah, I kind of was. <clears throat> I was doing that on, on the, the Send Your Love album with Are You Single too. But, you know, I, I was just bringing what I brought to the table and I was just doing what I do. You know, and the more I did it, I started writing more songs. And by the time the next album came, I had some ideas for a few songs. And I remember Stevie <laughs> said, "Can I? Can I? I wanted to. I wanted to go home and spend a few days at my family's home." And East Orange was like about twenty, about 
25 minutes away from Linden. So I said, Stevie, can I can I hold this bass? I'm going home for a couple of days. And she said, oh, yeah, sure. It was a little Fender Jazz bass. I don't know. I just wanted to mess around with a bass, you know. And I took it home, and I was playing and playing. And I came up with this idea. And I wrote the foundation of this song. And then came up with the hook later on. Or the lyric, we wrote the lyrics to it. But it was a song on the a Little Love album called uh, Thinking of You. And uh, I wrote the bass line and everything, but I, I, didn't, I didn't, I let uh, either Stevie or Ray, Stevie had Ray play the bass line because he was a bass player, but I wrote it on the bass, just just messing around because I, I just wanted to try things, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I wrote this pop ballad called Baby It's You, It's You. That was uh, that was a big that was a big song that probably should have been a big crossover hit, you know. I don't. It was never released as a single, but I think had it been, it probably would have done very well. Um, but it came together. It evolved. Just seeing seeing it come together and evolve was really great, you know. So I, with the steps I was taking with what I had already been doing, and then where. Where I was trying to go, and, and just having more input with with Stevie on the record, and with, he gave me like a, so I think I think it was it production credits, associate production. I was because I was making some production decisions, you know, doing some things, you know. Yeah. How how was it being on Cell Soul? I mean, at that time, I know they had Sky was a big band on the on that label, and a couple others. Did you intermingle much with your label mates uh, while you were there? Uh, well, we, we'd only go up to South Soul for certain meetings, and you'd only see people if they happen to be there for that day, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, I do remember seeing Sky there a couple times, and I remember seeing Instant Funk there a couple times, you know. Um, uh, but not, not, all, not that frequently, because, you know, we'd go there for a meeting and then leave, you know, go do what we had to do, you know. Mm. No, but, um, did they ever try to get you to tour with other label acts uh we got on tours but it was always the tours we got on were usually with uh i don't know our record i i think you get on the tours with the promoters and uh when your record is hot and where, wherever you know especially in the regions where your record's hottest you know you don't want to promote it and uh we wound up on on tour a lot with like Poon the Gang, Frankie Beverly and Maine, the Barkays an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Barkays to me, man, that seeing them play night after night, that was impressive. To me, the records, no, the records were fine, obviously, but they didn't give justice to what this band sounded like when they were on the road. Mm-hmm. You go on the road and we toured with them and we watched them play a whole different experience than what you got on the record. These guys, you know, they were the, the opposite. Like everybody said, yeah, you can do anything in the studio. You sound good in the studio, but can you do it live? These guys on the road, now their record sounded good, but on the road, they were like, wow, just amazing, amazing sound, amazing presence. And we got to tour with them quite a bit with Slade 
And then when we made the transition transition to Aura and, and came out with that that following year, I think uh, the guitar player at the time, Lloyd, the guy with the long hair, he, yeah. he saw me. He was like, "Wow, man!" He said, "I'm impressed. You're back here again, and it's a whole different outfit, a whole different name, whole thing." But the record's hot and everything. He said, "I'm I'm truly impressed, man." And I I just said, "Wow, that's pretty impressive." These guys been at it a long time. And yeah. uh, Larry, uh, lead vocalist of Barcase. Yeah, and, I, uh, I just interviewed him actually tonight. That show's growing up, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, man, that guy, I used to watch him night after night. And I, I've, I've seen a lot of great shows and a lot of great entertainers. I love them all. But something about Larry, man, watching him, on the road, I learned so much about making a connection with the audience from him. Larry had this way of coming out on stage with the band and, and with his presence and the way he spoke to the audience during songs and in between songs and when he sang and delivered, he made you feel like you are you were in the very best place you could possibly be on earth in that moment. Hmm. He had a way of making you feel that. He was he was brilliant, man. He, the connection that he he made with the audience. I watched him and watched. I said, "Wow, that." I had my notepad out, man. I was watching. I'm, like, wow. I'm watching all these heroes, you know, loving it. Yeah. So, uh, Or did a few more records, and um, I don't think he ever quite hit it as big again as uh, "Are You Single" or "Make Up Your Mind," right? So. Um, how did you feel about the subsequent albums and what stands out to you about about those? Um, uh, I liked them. The, the album after A Little Love that had Make Up Your Mind on it was uh, <clears throat> me, Live and Let Live. And that had a lot of good material on it. We had good songs. And, uh, and we, we went out and played. Uh, but at that time, I think things were starting to shift a little bit. Uh, that was, I think. Yeah. 83. Yeah, 84. 84. Because 83, we, we were out on the road. We did Soul Train with uh, Make Up Your Mind and Are You Single, all of us together. <clears throat> I think the fourth album, we went out and played dates. But um, at that time, I think we had Stevie and and the rest of us had kind of separated ways. And uh, we kind of started just taking our own direction, trying to, play, trying to play dates and doing what we were doing and and going for whatever we could go for, you know. And, um, Stevie got involved with uh, George Clinton at that point, right? Uh, I think shortly after that. I, I'm not exactly exactly what year, but... Uh, yeah, he he knew George for a long time, and he got a <clears throat> excuse me. One of my favorite things that uh that he did. I mean, I love this, the bass line in "Are You Single." I'll hold it dearly to my heart forever. But one of my favorite Steve Washington bass lines is what he did for George Clinton on "Hey, Good Looking." Mm. Man, just another example of that sound mm. that he took another step further. You know, and he, he, he knew what Adam's 
Mark Adams's touch was, and he built the sound for that touch. But it, the sound he had for himself was built around the way his style of touch. And man, just just amazing stuff. So eventually, uh, you changed to Deja. And because uh, I think you changed labels, right? I'm not sure if you went to Virgin or where you went, but um, you changed labels. And I remember I was I was a DJ at the time in a record pool when I got the Deja record, and I was kind of confused, you know. Well, it's like, what? This is this is these guys, you know? Why do they have a different name and what's going on? So what what transpired then? And and I know you had some success. Well, we had um, <clears throat> after the Living That Live album. I think this last record that we did with Stevie Washington. And we did another one uh, with Jimmy Randolph and Eban Kelly as uh, producers with us, along with us. And uh, it was called Bedtime Story. It was never released here in America, but was released overseas. And so from that record, a couple songs that became hits over there, a song called Like I Like It, uh, we went over to, to England for the first time, Starlene and I, promote that. And the record was signed under in America under Next Plateau Records. Next Plateau Records, before Salt and Pepper got there, before it even blew up, it was still a small independent label. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we went over to promote the record. Over there, the record was signed with, with uh, Virgin 10, you know, and uh, Virgin was huge over there, but they didn't have offices set up here in America yet. So when you saw somebody like Loose Ends, they were signed with Virgin over in, over in London. But when they came over here, they were distributed by MCA. Virgin had distribution deals with different major labels for their acts at that time. Mm -hmm. And when we did that record, Next Plateau, <clears throat> I think I, I kind of requested that we just did the one record. And just because it felt like we were watching the same movie again. We were with South Soul, they were a small independent label, but they weren't in a position to really put forth, or I don't know whether they were in a position or didn't want to. I don't know what the answer to that is. But videos were becoming everything at that time. And at that time coming up, if you weren't shooting a video, you really weren't considered a, a real solid recording act. Videos, MTV, VH1 blew up and it was just, it was as necessary as the record itself, maybe even more, you know? So <clears throat> I said one year with Next Plateau, and I wanted to find a way to get to the next level. And we, they had a distribution deal with Virgin overseas. So when we went over to promote it, spoke to some of the people at Virgin and they said, we understand it, uh, you're trying to, uh, trying to find a deal. You only have uh, this one year with Next Plateau. And I said, yeah, that's correct. And uh, I said, well, we obviously can't do anything right now because we have a contractual agreement with them, a distribution deal with them for this. But when your contract is up, would like very much to speak to you about signing a deal. And Starlene and I were in the hall with, I think it was Richard Griffith at the time who was over there. And I said, well, that would, that would be awesome. That would be great. And that's kind of how that happened. 
contract expired. Uh, we had cut a bunch of stuff. And one song that didn't make it on the Bedtime Story album was You and Me Tonight. And somehow it got out overseas as a single and played. And then over in America, it wasn't released at all either. But somehow it got played on radio. DJs at that time, they played what they wanted. They heard something hot. And they played that. That started getting airtime in New York that summer like it was released here. And it wasn't even released. So you could hear it on the radio every day, but you couldn't buy it. Yeah. Well, fast forward to us signing that deal with Virgin, Mick Clark. Uh, we just lost him months ago, who was an amazing AR person, amazing record company person, old school, really in touch with the music, signed nothing but the best acts. He's, he signed Soul to Soul to Virgin. He signed a lot of the great acts there. And he signed us. And when he, we were talking about doing this record, Mick was going for the juggler vein he said you know he's i'm going to minneapolis i want i want to try to get jam and lewis jam and lewis would have done it if their schedule was open at that time jam and lewis were at the hottest that they could ever be so they were more busy than anybody i think they were busier than the president of the united states you know they were that busy but uh the, the schedule that virgin had that they wanted to start recording for us and release didn't fit jam they would have to wait too long and they didn't want to do that so they said well jam and lewis aren't going to be available said, but i have an interesting fact here monty moyer from the time is interested he knows who you are and he's he expressed interest in working with. i said monty moyer from the time he said are you aware i said yeah i know who he is kidding me got all this stuff he's done and we had met the time when we were out on the road with Are You Single and Make Up Your Mind. They, they're in California. They came to one of our shows. We saw them and they, they came to one of our shows in, uh, uh, I think it was San Diego or LA. And we had, a, we, we, and, we, and they came backstage and they came to our show because the way we saw, saw them, we were coming to the hotel to check in and one of the spots we were playing at and somebody had our tour bus that we had and the same driver that we had the year before when we did our single on the road mm -hmm. and said, who has our bus? So who is that? And so we, nobody knew. And so I'm walking in the room to tell Stevie a message from the road manager. And Stevie's standing there talking to this guy. This guy's all, you know, just very articulate, very cool. And I recognized his face, but I, I was trying to put a name with it. And I said, excuse me, Stevie, um, we need to do, and he said, you know who this is, don't you? And I said, looked up and I said, he said, the time. I said, oh yeah, and it's Jimmy Jam. And he had this big smile on his face and he was just so cool. He said, I just want to wish you continued success. He said, we, we listen to you all and a few others and we don't listen to a whole lot of other stuff, <laughs> he said, but you all we do. And I, he was just as gracious as he could be. It, just amazing. I don't have to tell you about his talent. So that speaks for itself. But uh, he, that's how I already knew who they were. 
but I didn't meet Monty himself. I met Jimmy and Terry, and uh, I think I met Jesse. Jesse came and hung out with Stevie in a room one night when we were there in LA. And I missed the, I missed the hang because Jesse stayed till the wee hours of the morning jamming on guitars with Stevie, Stevie Washington. And he told me, I said, oh man, Jesse did. I said, like, wow, I missed that. I was like, yeah, but so we, we kind of knew each other. We were like the funk groups uh, that were coming from that early eighties period. We were the new blood kind of, so to speak. And so that when he said Monty Moore, I said, absolutely. And uh, we mixed it great. When we schedule a flight, we'll go up to meet with Monty and his manager. And that was in 86, July of 86, my first time in Minneapolis. We stayed downtown at the Marriott. I could see First Avenue right from my window, mm. down down my window. And I was like, wow, that's where they did a lot of the Purple Rain movie. And I was like, wow. And so we got to meet with uh, Monty and his manager. Monty and I clicked. We're both Virgos. So we, and we have similar personalities in a lot of ways. And so we go out to eat. We're all hanging out, having a good time. And, and you know, we're talking. And then we get back to the hotel. Star goes to her room. She's done hanging. And so my manager, Andy Gould and uh, Dan Brennan, Monty's manager, come to the room with us. Come to, to my room, the suite. And they're on one side of the room talking their thing. Monty and I are sitting in the middle of the room in chairs that, sitting there talking about music and all the things. And, and we were talking about all the stuff, the music that, that both groups had been doing and, and where we come from. And we just had this click with the, our personalities. Out of nowhere, we both said, you know what? I feel like I knew you all my life. He said, yeah, the same thing. And from there on, we just locked as friends. And to this day, he's still one of my best friends on earth. I mean, and that's great. It, it's like I told him we, we did the record and the record was done and um, it did some good things. We had some videos shot and did some really good things. But I, I sent a message back to him. I told him, I said, man, the record's great. But the friendship that came from doing this record is more valuable to me than any record could ever sell. I just want you to know that. And yeah. We've been like family ever since. That's cool. Yeah. So, so we go to Minneapolis. We do the record. We go up and do. We go up. Mick Clark scheduled to do three songs. Monty had three songs uh, ready, pre-production, and uh, so we started tracking and we started doing it. Starlene and I started singing the vocals, and the first one's done. I felt good. It felt really good. Second one's done. Third one's done. Get the mix on it. Kind of getting it going and. Rough mixing really sounded good. And and then the, the rest of the, the arrangement was we do those three songs and then Mick was going to bring us back to New York with our manager, Andy, and we were going to discuss who else we were going to get to work on the album with us, maybe another producer or whatever, how we were going to do it, put this record together. But we had the three songs. And midway through the third song, I said to Star, I said, you know what, man? I know we want to go listen to other people and talk to other people, but I don't want to go nowhere else. I want to do the whole record right here. She said, I feel the same way. 
we just had this energy going on there with Monty and it just felt so great. It was like one of the best recorded experiences we had ever. And it was just awesome. So when Mick Clark called to find out how everything was going and uh, I said, Mick, it's going really great. Um, songs are coming out good. And I said, and just to tell you how good it's going, we talked amongst ourselves and we decided we don't want to go anywhere else. We don't want to interview anybody else or get no other producers. We want to do the whole record right here. He said, really? It's going that good? I said, yeah, this is where we want to do this record. And he said, well, all right, that's that's amazing. I'm surprised, and but excited. I'm excited you feel that strong about it. And he got behind what what was going on. He was such a great artist, relation person. He, he can, and a personality, he can connect the right people with the right people in music. He had such an ear for R&B music and just in music in general. But he was such a fan of it that he, he just, he had success because of, because he just loved it so much. When you're doing something you love, it's not work to you. And you could tell Mick Clark loved what he did. Absolutely loved it. And, uh, you know, he was responsible for the whole Minneapolis connection for us and, and meeting Monty and and working up there. Uh, we did, we stayed from October uh, all the way Christmas, we came home. Thanksgiving, I think we came home and Christmas, we came home, spent with our family, went back to work in January and finished the record mm -hmm. late February. And uh, the very end of February. And so for four good months, we really dug in. And uh, you got a Minneapolis winter. <laughs> Pardon me? You got any experience to Minneapolis winter? Sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> Monty dropped us off from the studio. <clears throat> Excuse me. He used to take us to the studio, pick us up, and go to the studio. And he's dropping me off one night. To the Marriott downtown, and it's cold. I mean, Minneapolis cold at night in the winter time, man, in January or something like that. And and I'm looking over, and he had this this uh like '86 BMW, small one, but it was a really nice car, cool. He was rolling in it, and I'm nervous. I'm looking over at his gas gauge, and it's it's hugging the E really close. And and you know, we were we were becoming better and better and better. Our friendship was becoming tighter and tighter. But I think this was one of those things that really busted us both out in laughter and tears. Cause I said, I was nervous. I looked at the gas gauge. I said, um, uh, don't you wanna, don't you think you wanna start showing some interest in that gas meter over there? <laughs> he just fell out laughing. He just thought that was the funniest thing showing some interest in it. And like, as I like, he knew he had let it slip and they'd let it go. He was planning on getting gas. He just didn't do it. And you know, it's just one of those things that we caught the moment and we laugh about that till this day because it was cold. And I wasn't trying to get out and push no car down the street. Sounds like a great experience. We met some wonderful musicians. There's so much talent in Minneapolis and you know, by then, you know, the story was Prince and no doubt about it. Prince put that place on the map musically in so many ways. But when you get there and you start going around town and you start playing, 
and you start hearing things and going to listen to people play, you realize, yeah, Prince is here, but there's a whole lot of other, a whole lot more talent here. And one of the families that I met is the Peterson family. Mm -hmm. You got Ricky Peterson, brother Billy, Paul Peterson. Paul was just on, yeah. Yeah, the group, with the, the group at that time called the family, but they mm -hmm. changed it to F Deluxe. <clears throat> and uh, man, those guys were so brilliant. We we'd finished recording, and there was a place across the street in the studio. And Monty and I say, "Yeah, we're wrapping up pretty good. You know what? We could finish this up, and we could still catch last call over there." Billy Peterson's playing over there. He's playing, playing some jazz, some upright bass. We go over there and listen to him. Uh, just incredible musicianship. The whole family is like, <laughs> it's it's almost scary how talented they are. It's like, they're just awesome. And they're just great people. They're just fun, fun people. Uh, Paul and I, I met him. Well, Ricky, we were, in a, we were recording in the same studio. Paul was doing his old solo album with MCA at the time, and Ricky was helping, brother Ricky was helping him produce it. At that time, Ricky was working with everybody and had just got the gig with David Sanborn and goes out while we're still there for the first tour with David Sanborn and they come through Minneapolis. And so we take time off from the studio to go see Ricky play with, with David Sanborn when he comes through Minneapolis. Brilliant, amazing, just great talents. Some of the, so many stories of musicians that like that I met up there. I mean, even years later, you know, when I, I, I told you I made that friendship with Monty, it's like family. So I'd go back all the time and visit in, uh, in the early 2000s. I was going out there and I spent in my winters. I was working in corporate bands in New Jersey. And then when the work would slow down in, in the holiday season and in like the winter, January, February, I'd go stay out in Minneapolis. And I was playing out there and I had kind of like the Kurt Jones band out there playing in the clubs, playing some Marvin Gaye stuff and all of the classic soul stuff and I had some of these guys some guys that were playing with Prince sat in and played with me Chance Howard Kirk Johnson wow he bought us Todd Burrell brilliant uh and then when Kirk couldn't make it on drums there's one night he had Stokely from Mint Condition come in and sit yeah. sit in yeah. on drums yeah. and then that was awesome because we were playing stuff and Stokely's killing it on drums and uh, you know didn't take too long for people to figure out who was back there. I said, Stoke, man, people know you're here, man. You, you want to sing something? He said, let me think about it for a minute. So we play another couple songs. And he said, okay, yeah, I'm ready. And he, so we go in and he does a rendition of Stevie Wonder's Creep. Never heard it sang like that ever in my life before. Smoked it. Totally just took the breath out of everybody and just killed it. And he, he brought his father to the gig because I guess his father was a big fan of Slavin back in the day and all. And, and I got to meet his dad and, and, and Stokely was really cool. He said to me, you call me anytime. Because they love the music, the mentality of the musicians up there. They would go on tour and play these big major tours, be making big money, but come home and be as adamant to show up on time or a little club gig that you're doing just because you want to play downtown because you're playing good music, they'd be just as intense about playing that as one of their tours. The love of music. 
in their hearts for the, a lot of musicians that I met out there. Just impeccable. Awesome. I, yeah, I love, love that. Incredible experience. Wow. Incredible. Did, did, did you ever see a prince at all in your time out there? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, saw him a couple times. The club we played at, a place called Jasmine's, it's no longer there now, but uh, it's a great room. And I had cut 360 and I needed to take photos for an uh, album cover. So friends of mine connected me with, we went to, we, uh, we went to this club to just hang out. When I first got into Minneapolis, Monty and I, and uh, Marcia Day, uh, she's related to Morris Day. And uh, we were sitting there listening to the band that was playing there. I was like, what a great room. A really nice room and, and a beautiful atmosphere. They had these little lights embedded in this, this like ceiling that cut through like felt, what a black felt like, and they were just sparkling. And it just almost looked like stars. And it was just, the room had such a really great atmosphere and acoustic. I said, this would be a great room to play. And so hoping that it could happen. I didn't put a lot of energy into continuing that, but what they did talk to the owner about allowing me to come in and take some photos that were on the 360 album cover, the CD cover. And from there, that owner was about to sell the club and he sold it to the cook gentleman by the name of Kurt Carter, amazing cook, and he took over the club. He was a former bass player, so he loved musicians. So my friends said, we got Kurt Jones in town, and he's, you know, played Slave and Aura Man. You know, let's come in and play some, play some gigs, play, do some gigs here. He said, let him come one night. If you don't like it, we'll never have to do it again. Well, we came and we did it that night. Got a good, great response, and it just kept going on and on. And we kept playing there. And that was the spot to go and play. And then I go to their open mic during the week. So I go to their open mic during the week. And Todd, the keyboard player that was playing with me, was there already. Kirk Johnson was playing, was playing drums in the band, and that they were playing stuff. And I get up and go do my little thing. I'm playing, and I think we go into we played slide and a couple things, and I'm just playing. It's an open mic. We're just having fun playing. And I'm playing and looking over to Todd, and he points his head like out to the audience. So I'm looking, and I see somebody out there, and I, I don't know who it is. I didn't know they were with a few people, a hat on or something. And, and he, he does it again. I'm looking, and then I see this big bodyguard dude around. I'm like, oh, it's him. <laughs> so I'm playing and I'm like okay you know and then get done and um, go sit down and a little bit after that Prince steps up he has his fender strat it's like that crest the color of crest toothpaste kind of thing that one he played in the Super Bowl I think it was that same one that color he had that strat with him and he, he goes up and his bodyguards walking in front of him and and he walks by, you know, he looks looks at me, he kind of gives a little nod, you know, like he, you know, that was cool. And he goes up and he he starts playing. 
and he starts getting in the grooves. And Kirk Johnson played with him already. So they, he, he's got hand signals down. He, Prince was giving him all kinds of hand signals and Kirk was hollering out five hits and they were bop, 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 doing stuff like that. And it was just some of the baddest, baddest ass rhythm guitar I heard in eons. He was just smoking it, just killing it. I was just like, I can't believe I'm sitting here watching this right now. It's like, it's like a free concert almost. He was just, but he was just in the moment because he loved music, having fun, doing what he does. You know, he'd go anywhere and do that. You've heard countless times where he does his concert and then go to some small club after, uh, after hours in New York City and go play for three hours. Yeah. Um, I was lucky to experience several of those myself. I'll never forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Some pretty amazing stuff, man. Um, yeah, up there in Minneapolis, I got to do that and with, with that, that band with Kirk Johnson and, and uh, Chance Howard playing with me, Todd Burrell, Marcia Day was singing backgrounds, uh, bass, Chance was playing bass, and Chance was so great that he played real bass, but on certain mm -hmm. songs, whatever I picked, if it, if it deemed it, he bought his keyboard as well. So he would switch from real bass to keyboard bass and just smoke on it and just hit. It was just like, ah, this is like being in rhythm section in heaven, man. It was just awesome, you know? Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Um, amazing. So, Kurt, I want to move the story forward so we can get to your current stuff. Okay. Uh, but before I do, real quick, uh, why did uh, Deja come to an end? Why did Deja come to an end? Yeah. Um, I think it was, it just differences. Uh, you got to remember, Starlene and I had worked together since my band that I told you about when we were in high school, Symphonic Express. We worked together on and off, but more on than off for all those years. And it came to a certain point, I think, where we just saw things differently, uh, whether it be management or creative, whatever it was, it was just, it was tough. It just, I can think of a lot of different things, but what it all spells out to me when I think in hindsight now was that it was just time for that to happen because we had been together doing this since we were kids and we had grown up in the industry but it was time for us to be adults and do things that we didn't get a chance to do you know I, after that ended i met my first wife and we got married and had a kid you know i became a father you know she she got married to who she had been seeing for years, JT from Cool and the Gang, and they got married, you know, and, and they had a son, you know, it's like things like that. It just seemed like it was just time for that to happen. And so I guess it was the end was to set up the next chapter of our lives. Yeah. Before um, I talk about your um, solo works, uh, Kurt, I noticed that you uh, did some recording with them to me in the 80s too. How, how did that happen? Uh, that, that's because, well, Ray Jackson and, and Phil Fields, they were part of the aura camp before they got with them to me. Once they got with them to me, they started doing things. And then um, the aura thing kind of disbanded in the form that we had with Stevie. 
before before as it was turning into deja and the things were the thing what starlene and i took over and started doing just with us two um i was still friends with the guys and, and Tume was cool i i met him a bunch of times and you know they call me up and race ray would be trying to help me and phil would be producing a track with him Tume on this and doing the tracks and tunes we need kurt on this man we got to get kurt up here and so they had me come up to East Orange in the studio to record that. And I got to cut tracks on it and sing some vocals and stuff like that. And, and it was just like an extended family camp kind of thing. You know, my guys were already there. And uh, I, did a, I did a lot of guitar and background vocals on a record that uh, Phil did with Forum uh, Tume for Tyrone Brunson. He was with MCA, I think, at the time. And uh, I remember doing a lot of work on that. Bill got me in on that record. He was, man, I want you on all of this, you know. And I got to play on Prime Time uh, on the You, Me, and He album. Play, you know, some guitar stuff and, uh, and sing some background. And Toons was just cool, man. He, he, they would go out on the road and play. And it was like one weekend, they went up to, up to Boston. And um, he said to Ray, he said, what's Kurt doing? Is he around? He said, yeah, he's in town, he's just hanging. Ask him if he wants to come up with us. Just just to hang. You know, so I just drove up to Boston with them in the van and we hung out and I watched this show and it was a blast. You know, I just hang out with him, you know. Cool. Yeah. And Tumes, he was very well, I remember being in a hotel room and I was cutting some material that became that evolved into songs that wound up on the Deja album that I did with Monty in Minneapolis. And one of the songs was Some Things Turn Around. And uh, I played it for him too, man, at that time when we were up in a hotel room up in Boston. He's listening, he's like, yeah. He said, hear that bell part? I said, yeah. Said, Take that up an octave higher. I said, really? Said, yeah. I didn't even ask you any questions. I said, bet. You're the guy, <laughs> you know? And he is legendary, man. He had hits with Reggie Lucas before yeah. that. Oh, yeah. and then, you know, he was doing it again. And, and things just had a way with things, you know. That's back to the Phyllis Hyman connection, too. Yeah, that's right. Phyllis Hyman, uh, Stephanie Mills. Yeah. Never knew love like this before. You know, that was huge. Yeah. And there was a, a definite theme to that sound. But yeah, that Phyllis Hyman record was great. I used to play that over and over again. To play that stuff all the time and that was not too long before i got with slave so my sister and i were huge phyllis hyman fans we play that record you know how to love me all that stuff all over and over again then fast forward to man first tour i'm out with her and she's doing that record i'm like whoa this is mind blowing yeah it's like you can't write this stuff right ah man you can't you can't yeah and I'm here once again, joined by the one and only Kurt Jones. We had to connect briefly to finish some unfinished business from the last time we talked. Apparently, all that time wasn't enough to encompass the amazing career of, of Kurt Jones. And we, we missed out talking about a very important record, Kurt, and that was the final uh, Deja record, 89, which had a big hit on it and was produced by none other, none other than Teddy Riley. So uh, tell me about that, Kurt. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, well. Uh, that was at the period of time when uh, Starlina Young and I had parted ways, and it was just so 
just we had a difference of opinion of management and different things and it was just time for us to go our own way and uh uh we i auditioned you know someone to fill in and and do another record with us and uh virgin records got behind me and we and uh my management and we took tapes from everywhere and um everyone was sending audio tapes audio tapes and there were some really good ones some decent ones some okay ones but there was one that came through that caught my attention immediately and that was a vhs tape and this was of the singer who wound up working with me on that album her name is misty day and at that point in time she was living in houston now she was she had quite a career going on down there just playing live performing with her bands in the Houston area. And uh, she sent a live VHS tape of her, her show, you know, and she was performing, just rocking it, just killing it, doing Aretha Franklin songs, all kinds. She had amazing stage presence and uh, the voice was spectacular. So I had immediately called my manager. I said, uh, I told him we could stop looking. I found the tape. I found the one, you know, it sent the VHS tape. He said, really? He was excited. I said, yeah. So he said, well, can you come over? And so yeah, I said, sure. I hopped on the train and went over to Manhattan and uh, bought the tape. And then we made contact with Misty and uh, proceeded to have her come up to New York and, and meet everyone in the management and then uh, then eventually meet everyone at Virgin and uh, got going and Mick Clark set it up so that we can start the next album and it was going to be with Teddy Riley who at that time was you know he could <laughs> New Jack Swing was the thing and he could do no wrong he's and the king of New Jack Swing absolutely yeah I mean that's what he gets the big credit for but Teddy <laughs> Teddy is so much more than just New Jack Swing I mean I <laughs> You get when you once you start working with him, you know this guy is very thorough. And this he was pretty young when we were doing this, and but he was well knowledge in music and uh, technology, all of that. It was it was impressive to see, and he was exciting to work with him. We we exchanged ideas and did a lot of things. Um, I brought music to the table, and uh, he and I remember we came over to have a meeting and. Uh, he was with his manager and my manager got together and they started talking and then we were talking and I told Teddy, yeah, I got a tape, pre-production tape. He said, you got songs? I said, yeah. He said, I want to hear the music. Let's hear the music, you know. And we dug right in and started getting ideas and he was just brilliant you know, from top to bottom. Amazing. His success is no accident. Someone that knowledgeable and someone someone that talented, you know. At the time, I bet was he curious of what you had picked up from Steve Washington? Was he into that? Um. Well, I think he can hear what I did with the music that I was doing. Like for 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 at that point in time, New Jack's swing was it was the biggest, the hottest thing. Yeah. And I, like I always did like I do. I wrote like funk tune and and I had a, an interesting song, like a, a reggae ballad that I bought called Dreamer. 
And he heard that and he loved that. And, you know, because him doing New Jack Swing, that's what he was making his money from. But that was something that I don't think he'd ever done with any of the artists that he was producing at the current time, you know. So, I mean, it just kind of made it a little more interesting, you know. And he, boy, he jumped right on it. And he was, it was incredible. It was incredible working with him, getting his ideas for things and just watching from the other side to see how he worked. And then, you know, he gave me my room to do what I did and it just kind of worked. We uh, we spoke about a duet, uh, which was the first single off of the album uh, called Made to Be Together. And we were talking about that Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell kind of duet thing. And, and we, we always talked about it when we got together, but we were working on other tracks. And one day I went home and I came, I was home and I just started singing this hook and I was playing with the hook. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna let him hear this next time we get together. So I went over to Teddy's the next time to work. And I said, you know what, I got I got the hook for that duet we were talking about. And he stopped what he was doing. He said, you do? Let me hear it. And I started singing it. And he just nodded his head and he started playing keyboard changes behind it. And from then on, we just kept going and going. And he started building the track and I started finishing lyrics. I think the song was done in like a half an hour, finished being written because it just kind of wrote itself. And we started recording right then and there and did a rough version of it. And uh, we did, uh, Misty did her part and I did mine and we, we kind of nailed it. I think that was, the, I think that wound up pretty much being the, the version that made the record. I'm sure he did some mixing, additional mixing things, but uh, that was the recording was was it. And his manager, Gene Griffin, came in to the room and heard it. <laughs> and he heard the and the whole version. He looked at me, he said, Boy, you want a hit, don't you? <laughs> you know, he was he, he was he was impressed with it. They both we, we all loved it. We all fell in love with the song immediately. And that became the first single. So this had the uh, electronic drums pretty much. It, was that, is that correct, Kurt? Yes. Yeah, so had you worked with electronic drums previously or just regular drums? Yeah, I worked with uh, electronic drums before that. Because uh, some of the songs, like the songs that I brought to them, I, I did at my own studio with, elect, you know, my own electronic pre-production studio and recording, I had electronic drums. And, um, also did that on the on the album before that with Monty, you know. So, and some songs for that album, I had been in the studio recording. They wound up, they were songs that I was recording for myself, really. And when we got the deal to do Deja, first it was Aura, and then we changed the name to Deja. I um, I just put put the songs in the pool for what we were going to put on that album. Mick Clark loved them and uh, wound up doing it. Uh, one was called Life, one was Some Things Turn Around, but that was the album before. One with Teddy Riley, we did, uh, I think I have a song called uh, You Don't Appreciate My Love. Uh, Dreamer was a ballad, a reggae ballad that I mentioned before. That really came out well. He had a uh, interesting crew on it. Teddy had some of his supporting crew helping out with background vocals. Had Big Bub from the group Today. He was on there 
singing with us and uh, uh, Bernard King, I think, uh, no, Bernard Bell. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Bernard Bell. His, um, he was Regina Bell's uh, sibling. Oh. Uh, yeah. Here it's not spelled with the E at the end like she does. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was good stuff. Uh, but Misty really stepped up and uh, just came came up from Texas and came in and did all of her stuff on the record. Really nailed it. And uh, we went on to promote that record. And I uh, had a really great time doing it. She's a true pro and uh, just an amazing vocalist still to this day. You know, I did something with her recently. Uh, she came and sat in with me live and did something with me recently a couple months ago. And she just blew the audience away. She just she just has that uh, that natural thing with her. You know. Did did she go out to do some work with Prince or kind of hang in that camp a little bit? No, I'm not. If she did, if she did, I'm not familiar with it. I don't. I don't think so. No. Okay. No. I know she's working on her own project though. She has some amazing material. I've heard quite a few of her things some of some of it is you can hear it online and there's some that's not finished yet that sounded really good um she had a cover and she knows i always talk to her about it she did a version of uh denise williams if you if you don't believe mm. man she just killed that i said that is your cover you have to you have to release that that sounded so good Amazing job. I got, I got to say, Kurt, you kind of went out in a way since, you know, you took a, a break from recording. You kind of went out in a way sort of on top. I mean, you had a big hit and then you took time off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just went that way. I mean, I think uh, I don't think Virgin picked up the option after that album. So just kind of went on into doing some independent production and uh, doing some things with RCA and uh, a partner, an engineer, Kendall Stubbs from New Jersey, from the Bahamas originally. We did some things together and uh, he he was instrumental. And together we worked on uh, the very first Baja Men album. Uh, he brought the Baja Men up from uh, Bahamas and we worked on their album. The first album we did uh, was uh, like a bunch of covers Bahamian covers, the Junkanoo rhythm in it, and it was an amazing project. It it was an an, a, an amazing opportunity to do some different type music and learn some things about it that I, you know, wasn't familiar with. And uh, everybody was so talented in that group. And, before they unleashed the dogs. Yeah, that was before that. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it was in a, the uh, the song was in a movie. The album was in a movie, uh, uh, I think My Father, the Hero, and uh, Gerard Depardieu played the lead in it. And it was mm -hmm. like a Disney movie. And uh, the band's, that, the album became a soundtrack and was in the movie. And I think the band even made, had cameo appearances in it. And uh, yeah, we, we after we finished the album, we we, we wrote the, the single for and the title track for the for the for the soundtrack called "Old Father," and uh, did pretty well. It was very good. It sounded great, really great stuff. It did a great cover 
of uh, funky Nassau. Man, it just mm -hmm. energy was just killing it. Just, the guys were amazing. 